This week on the Myths and Legends podcast, it's the original story of Beauty and the Beast. The original is incredibly different from any version you've heard before, and it contains monkey butlers, invisible genies, and 18th century versions of Spotify and cable TV. Then, on the Creature of the Week, take care of the forest, or you might find yourself on the bad side of its protector, who's either a ripped, hairy old man, or a giant possum. This is the Myths and Legends podcast, episode 35, Prisoners. This is a podcast where I tell stories from folklore. Some are incredibly popular stories you think you know, like today's, but with surprising origins. Others are stories you might not have heard, but really should. Real quickly, I know I said we'd be doing the Pocahontas story this week, but it is a huge story. The history is very, very time consuming, so that'll be next week. This week, though, it's one I've been wanting to do for a while. Today's the odd, long, and crazy original story of Beauty and the Beast. So let me just say that this is not the story you know. It's not even the one the story you know is based off of. It comes from the unabridged, original version of the fairy tale that inspired the story, that inspired the 90s animated movie, and seemingly countless iterations. Though the Beauty and the Beast tale follows in the strong tradition of many, many folk tales throughout the ages, like the story of Cupid and Psyche, this story isn't one that was handed down from generations. It's a literary fairy tale, so like The Little Mermaid of the Snow Queen, and it was written by one person, published in 1740. Her name was Madame Gabrielle Suzanne de Villeneuve. A huge thank you to everyone on Twitter and Facebook for your help, and I hope I got it right. The original is well over 100 pages, basically a novella, and it was abridged by another writer 16 years later, for a magazine for well-to-do ladies. It was severely pared down into a version many of us know today. All in all, she cut about 85 pages from the original. Like I said, this was the original, though I couldn't leave everything in. De Villeneuve liked her subplots, and around a fifth of the novella is devoted to talking about the politics and power structure of fairies. It's still a really interesting story, though. Keep in mind that the story was written for adults, though, not children though there's nothing really bad in it. It's seen as a critique of the marriage situation for young women at the time. The women didn't have many legal rights, whether to be in control of their own property, refuse a husband, refuse the marriage bed, or have the right to divorce. Basically, to quote a really interesting interpretation from a website called the Journal of Mythic Arts, women could be promised in marriage to total strangers and didn't know if they'd find a lover or a monster in the marriage bed. Just as a quick note, there's a recent study out that says the general story of Beauty and the Beast can be up to 6,000 years old. It's interesting, and I'll put it on the discussion post, but the reason I'm telling this version is because this is when it was put down to paper, and there's a very clear line back from the story we know today to this particular version. There was once a wealthy merchant. Things were going well for him, until they were very much not going well for him. His house burned down, and his 12 children escaped with the smoldering clothes on their backs. The children were all mostly excited about the turn of events, though. The house had been cramped and unfashionable. It was almost a good thing that it burned down. Now, they could get a bigger one. As you can see, the kids aren't spoiled at all. Almost as soon as they finished that sentence, a messenger arrived, telling the merchant that his ships had sunk. Which ships? The merchant asked. All of them messenger replied not just the ships either but everything on them they had all been out to sea 
and heavy laden with goods for the merchant. And now they were under to sea, presumably littering the Sea King's streets. The merchant stroked his mustache. He turned to his 12 children, still happy that their house burned down so that they could get a bigger one, and said, well, good news and bad news. The bad news is that we're now completely destitute because everything we own is gone. The good news is that we might not starve if we move to a farm on the edge of civilization and everyone pitches in and works. Oh, the children said, wait, what's work? Two years later, and as they were seated at the table for watery gruel, again, a messenger knocked at the door. The father answered it and jumped for joy. It was a ship. It had returned from the voyage where they thought everything was lost, and it had come back laden with goods. His children broke out into laughter and joy. They weren't poor anymore. Well, the father said, we're still like really poor. Nope, the kid said. Wait, you're going to the city to check on the ship, right? Get us presents with all our new money. Things are good now, and that means they'll stay that way forever. Yeah, no, the father said. We are so close to starving here. You have no idea. We're eating watery gruel. And it's true. The only land they could afford was barren nothingness on the edge of civilization. They could grow so little that the gruel was actually starting to taste good. His children wouldn't hear it, though. And they kept making ridiculous requests, like clothes, jewels, fancy weapons. The merchant... Completely ignoring his children, noticed that the youngest, with the not-at-all-on-the-nose name of Beauty, wasn't saying anything. He went to her and asked if she, too, wasn't terrible like her older siblings, and wasn't going to ask for completely impractical things. She said that the only thing that mattered to her was her father's health and safety. The room went quiet. Ugh, her sibling said. Who wishes for their parents' safety? What's her angle? The father was happy that one of his 12 children wasn't a selfish monster and said, No, really, what do you want? Beauty, after thinking for a long moment, decided that she wanted a rose. After a couple years basically in a desert, she had only heard of them. If he had leftover money after buying everything for her siblings, Beauty only wanted a rose. He smiled, kissed his daughter, and left. The other children were confused. Shouldn't he have been writing down what they wanted? Days later, when the merchant made it to the city, he met with his business partners. Their ship had come in, literally, and they weren't bankrupt anymore. Oh, hey, you, they said. Yeah, where's my money? Oh, so when you didn't show up immediately, uh, we had you declared legally dead. Ah, oh, if only you had been here immediately. So glad you're alive, though. The merchant was confused. You had my forwarding address. You sent me a letter saying that the ship was here. Yeah, but you didn't return as soon as the letter left our hands. We had to assume the worst. We also learned right afterward that we could have you declared legally dead. And since we hadn't seen you in a while, we decided that it was best to move on. Let go. We have a business to run. You would be missed, but we couldn't live in grief for everybody. Well, I'm not dead, the merchant said. So I'd like my share of the ship. You know what, they said. Let's not. It's probably really tough to bring someone back to life from a legal perspective. Who needs the headache? <laughs> not you, that's for sure. Let's just chalk this up as one of those funny little mistakes. We'll all laugh about this someday. Anyway, as you can see, we have piles of money here we need to get counting. We'll catch up later. 
Really great seeing you. You look great. Not at all like you're starving on the edge of civilization with a dozen children. So glad you're alive. See you later, buddy. The merchant was dumbfounded as the door closed in his face. The early modern period was a different time, but not so different that you can have a business partner declared legally dead after two years with no evidence because you just wanted his share of the profits. The merchant scraped together enough money to mount a successful six-month legal battle against his former partners. While he technically won, after his own legal fees and the fees of his partners, he found that the sum he got was greatly reduced. And what he did win went straight to his attorneys. He tried to sue his former partners for the remainder, but they were now insolvent. Though it was now the middle of winter, the merchant must make his way home because he didn't have enough money to stay in the city. He left after six months of stress and legal battles, only slightly better off than when he arrived. The merchant snapped awake, shivering. His toes burned. He vaguely remembered the night before, having to get off his horse because he couldn't see through the driving snow. He flexed his toes. Good, he could still feel them. He had left home in the middle of summer with only a light cloak, never intending to stay so long in the city. He had found a hollow tree in the night, somehow, and he had wedged himself in, sleep standing up. He had cowered in terror overnight until sleep finally took him because he could hear wolves and bears hunting just outside. He kicked the snow from the entrance. Two feet had fallen in the night. He waded out into the forest, and it was completely unrecognizable. The merchant had traveled for a few days after the city, and when he had crossed through the forest near his barren little farm, the snow picked up. He thought that it was lucky to find shelter, but merging into the sunlight, he had no idea where he was. The forest was vast, and the roads had all been completely covered, shaking in the sunlight, looking at the large, white forest all around him. He was lost. He wandered for the better part of a day, and even though the movement warmed him, he knew he must find shelter before nightfall, or he might not survive another night. His boots thoroughly soaked, he trudged until, over the trees, he saw a tower poking out. He ran and ran and pushed through to a clearing. The castle was large, and in front were statues littering the area. They were people, some women and children, but mostly warriors. The statues were odd because they weren't of anything in particular, just people in their daily lives. They were meticulously painted, too, to look like they were real people, frozen in place. Even odder than that, to me at least, the front wall had an orchard in front of it, with orange trees growing, in the middle of winter, in Europe, in the 18th century. No one wants to go into a dark castle in the forest, and if you find yourself lost in the forest, let decades worth of horror movies and centuries worth of fairy tales be your guide. Don't go into scary looking forest houses. The merchant, though reluctant, knew he would either freeze to death or be eaten if he stayed outside. He entered the castle. It was dead quiet inside and he thought it was abandoned. Cold room after cold room covered in dust confirmed this. This conclusion was quickly contradicted when he heard, from far away, the crackling of a fire. He popped his head around the corner and saw a large wing-backed chair in front of the fire. He found it empty and relaxed. Surely whoever lived in the castle had made this fire. And, being so far out in the forest, they likely really wanted guests. The merchant decided to sit in the chair in front of the fire. He would introduce himself when the castle owner came back, and he was sure he would be welcomed, because of course, the merchant's instincts about people up until this point were spot on, 
and the only thing people dislike about home intruders are when they're impolite. Since being shoved into a cold hollow tree and circled by predators was a less than ideal way to spend the previous night, the merchant fell asleep immediately. He snorted awake, with drool dribbling down his chin and onto the chair hours later. The fire in front of him was still blazing. It was comfortable, but he was getting hungry. He straightened up in the chair, and that's when he saw a meal laid out in front of him on a silver tray. He yelled back into the darkness, a sincere and honest thank you to his host. He looked in front of him, various meats and breads. He was starving, but he would wait. Remember, he didn't want to be impolite. He waited and waited and waited for his host to appear and eat with him, but the person never did. In his politeness, he, once again, fell asleep. Waking up yet another four hours later, he saw two more trays in front of him with all manner of desserts and liquors. The merchant rolled his eyes, deciding that his rudeness of eating without his host was now completely outweighed by the host leaving him waiting for over four hours. Despite the host not really ever welcoming the man into the house, the merchant decided that he was completely justified in eating everything in front of him. Standing up after the meal, he determined that the host must just be shy. He would find him and thank him. And nothing quite puts a shy person at ease like going through absolutely every room in his house. The merchant did this but found nothing. Standing back by the fire, the merchant was puzzled. He didn't see his host anywhere. The merchant then lighted on one inescapable, logically irrefutable truth. A kindly spirit had prepared this castle for him as a gift. He was now the owner of it and everything inside. How had he not seen this obvious fact earlier? Next week is the beginning of the Pocahontas episodes, but we're getting an early start on the theme of, I don't understand the rules of this place, therefore I own it. The merchant then remembered all the fantastic riches in the rooms he had entered, uninvited. Riches that vaguely matched what his terrible, terrible children had wanted. Tearing down a rich, woven tapestry that was now his rich, woven tapestry, he tied the corners together into a makeshift bag. Going room to room, he shoved everything of any value into his giant bag. By the time he reached the garden, it was almost too heavy to drag. That's when he saw the roses. Beautiful rose bushes lined the garden, and he remembered his sweet, youngest daughter, Beauty. Then he looked at his massive bag, and reality set in. What was he doing? Removing all these riches from the castle. That didn't make sense. When he and his family can live in the castle, his terrible, terrible children can't object to that. Ah, but still, the rose for beauty. He might as well bring that back now. Out in the snowy garden, he plucked one rose for his daughter and heard a booming voice behind him. That one rose would change the rest of his and his family's life forever. And we'll get into that right after this. This week's episode is brought to you by Casper Mattresses, obsessively engineered, American-made mattresses at a shockingly fair price. So either I've just been using terrible mattresses or I've been sleeping wrong for years. Anyway, I got a Casper. We were overdue for a new mattress and the move was a good time to finally get rid of the old one. And oh my gosh, I seriously wake up feeling great. No weird back or neck pains. I haven't slept this great in years. It's awesome. It has springy latex and supportive memory foams with just the right sink and just the right bounce. And it's really something you have to feel to understand. Time Magazine named it as one of the best inventions of 2015, and I totally believe it. 
It's now one of the most awarded mattresses of the decade. So if you're in the market for a new mattress, check out Casper. They do free shipping and free returns in the U.S. and Canada. You can try it for 100 nights, risk-free and at home. And if you don't love it, they'll pick it up and refund everything. It comes to your house in this box that is surprisingly small for holding a mattress. And which, as someone who just moved several, is way easier than moving a bulky mattress. If you're interested, you can get $50 off any mattress purchase by visiting casper.com legends and using the code legends. Really, if you want to get awesome sleep, check out casper.com legends. Terms and conditions apply. Okay, back to the story. As soon as the rose was free from the bush, the merchant heard a booming voice behind him. Who told you you could gather my roses? Is it not enough for you that I let you stay in my castle? Your insolence will not go unpunished. He felt something similar to an elephant's trunk wrap around his neck. And before it tightened too much, the merchant was able to get a good look at the speaker. Whoa, 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 whoa. I'm not ungrateful, my lord. I just assume that given the fire and the food and the... His eyes darted to the tapestry containing way too many riches. All of the things I was going to borrow. I just assumed that a rose couldn't possibly have offended you. The creature narrowed his eyes. He yelled to the merchant that he didn't go by lord or any other title. He was the beast. And the merchant will not escape the death he deserves. Death? Really? For a rose? The merchant asked. Okay, let me explain to you why I'm here. And he did. Everything. The beast stroked his forehead with a massive claw. He said, first, that, wow, that was a lot of unsolicited exposition, and, second, he'll make a deal with the merchant. He will pardon the man if the merchant provides someone in his place. The merchant has daughters? They'll do. If one takes their father's place here, then the father can walk free. The girl will live out the rest of her days with the beast. If the girl doesn't come, the merchant must come back and die. But there was a condition, a big one. The girl had to want to come. She had to desire it out of her own free will, and the father must not bring her as a captive. One more thing, the beast said as he wrenched the merchant closer with his elephant trunk. If the merchant thinks that he can just leave and never come back, then, after a month, the beast will come not only for him, but his entire line, him, his children, any living relatives. They will all die. Okay, really quickly, we're going to talk about what the beast looks like. The original is frustratingly vague. He's not some big, cool dog monster, like in the Disney version. Some artistic interpretations have him as reptilian, and he does have scales that scrape the floor. But he also has a long elephant's trunk and hairy claws. Basically, we're not supposed to see him as a cool monster at all. He is terrifying, ugly, and grotesque. Anyway. The merchant was forced to stay the night because the beast was preparing a horse for him that would not only take him back quickly, but return to the castle in a month so that the merchant could find it. At dinner that night, the beast sat at the table, reminding him that, once again, he wanted to keep a young girl prisoner here, but he wanted her to want to be a prisoner here. Tell her all about what I look like in my creepy castle. To quote Wreck-It Ralph, he's a bad guy, but he's not a bad guy. He's a beast, not a monster. Riding back the next day, the merchant bewailed his circumstances. He clutched the rose he picked the night before, the one that got him into all the trouble. The beast had demanded he take it to beauty. He thought about his situation. To deliver a daughter into captivity was shameful. He decided that he would take her place. 
He would turn this horse around. He yanked on the reins, but it wouldn't turn back. It was set on its course. The merchant then decided to say goodbye to all of them. To be with his largely insufferable children one last time. He wouldn't mention the beast or any of this, but he would just leave in a month when he was due back. It would be his secret, and it would die with him. Unfortunately, he was very, very bad at keeping a stiff upper lip, and he burst through the door in tears to his worried family and handed the rose to Beauty and said, through tears, here's what you demanded of me, but you will pay dearly for it. And instead of keeping a secret, he explained absolutely everything in excruciating detail. The children were outraged. The girls, because they wouldn't get their riches or husbands, and, oh yeah, dad's gonna die. That's totally just as sad. The sons were a bit more honorable and said that they would take their weapons and kill the beast. Then the daughters said no. It wouldn't do for anyone but Beauty to go. If Beauty hadn't asked for this incredibly selfish and ridiculous gift of a single rose, instead of the much more reasonable and moderate gift of infinitely expensive golden jewels, they wouldn't be in this predicament. Beauty was weeping. She did mention, to her credit, that she didn't want anything but his health, and only said a rose because she was pressed to say something, and in the middle of summer, roses were plentiful. But no, forget it. Racked with grief that she had caused all of this, that her gift would lead to her father's death, she resolved, of her own volition and her mostly right mind, that she would go into captivity for her father. Okay, so let's talk about coercion here. First, let me just say that Beauty makes an incredibly brave choice to go in her father's place. That being said, almost everyone in her house is saying, basically, dad will die because of a gift he got for you. It's all your fault, you should go. The father was silent, but he will still see her off. And let's not forget that he made the choice to tell them absolutely everything about the beast and the deal. Personally, I think the father is a coward and was secretly hoping that one of his daughters would step up and take his punishment, but that's just my interpretation. Beauty, wrapped in furs, climbed atop the horse that had come from the beast's castle. The sisters didn't bother to hide their joy, but the brothers were weeping. They briefly considered strangling the horse, but Beauty demanded they didn't. This is what should happen. The father got on the horse with her. He had to see her back, and they left. After a trip through the forest and a short fireworks show in the orange grove, Beauty and her father sat in front of a magnificent table of food. As an aside, Beauty mentioned on the horse, feeling as if she was being carried by Zephyr, the western wind, to his palace. And that should remind you of another story we've talked about on the podcast. The story of Cupid and Psyche strongly influenced this story. As they were eating, they heard from the darkness all around them the scales of the beast dragging on the floor, and a roar. Beauty began shaking, and her father tried to comfort her. Out of the darkness, even more ugly and horrific than she imagined, the beast emerged. He ignored the merchant, and instead began asking Beauty questions. Was she here voluntarily? Yes. What did she think will happen after her father leaves in the morning? She didn't know, but her life was at his disposal. The beast's face curled into what they guessed was a smile. This one would do. The next day, the father left with another horse, overloaded with riches, a kind of dowry for beauty. 
wanting to be quick and not provoke the beast's anger, he said a quick goodbye forever to his daughter and left. Beauty was by a canal in beautiful summer. She had been having this dream for a few days since her father left. This time, though, was different. A young man, as beautiful as Cupid, hint, hint, appeared beside her. He explained that things were not as dire as she feared. The young man said that he loved her deeply, and he warned her that appearances were not what they seemed. With that, she awoke in the dark, drafty castle. Somewhere, off in the shadows, she heard her captor's scales scraping the floor. Each night, the beast would sit down to dinner with his new roommate slash captive, and they would have pleasant conversation for about five sentences, until the beast asked her to marry him. She was shocked, and he said, it's simply a yes or no question. Oh, okay. No, no, absolutely not. I will not marry you, Beauty said, being inescapably clear. The beast bit his lip, and though the story has been frustratingly sparse on visual details regarding this central character, let's assume he was capable of crying. With tears welling in his eyes, he said that he needed to go right now, and no, it wasn't related to the proposal, don't worry about it, bye. Beauty shrugged. She didn't have a choice but to stay here, but she did have a choice if she wanted to marry a scaled beast with a trunk like an elephant, and she very much did not wish to do that, so she said no. Hearing his sobs as he ran off down the hall, she felt considerably more confident that he would not eat her. So, this story's about to get very weird and wonderful, with, as I said, ape and monkey butlers, 18th century cable TV, and a version of Spotify run by very talented birds, right after this. This episode is brought to you by Loot Crate. Have you ever thought to yourself, hey, I like loot, but I don't want to have to sleep standing up in a frozen tree to face a creepy castle or give up a child to get it? Well, you don't have to. Now you can have it delivered right to your door. Loot Crate is a monthly subscription box service for geek and gamer items and pop culture gear. For less than $20 a month, you can get four to eight things that include licensed stuff, apparel, collectibles, unique one-of-a-kind items, and more. And unlike the story today, it probably won't contain cursed roses that will doom you and your whole family. Though each month is a surprise, so who knows? If you go to lootcrate.com legends and enter code legends, you can get $3 off your new subscription today. So, I was looking around at some of their past exclusive t-shirts, and they have some cool mashups, like the Ewoking Dead, which is exactly what it sounds like, and would actually be completely terrifying. Think about how quickly the Ewoks beat the Stormtroopers, then think about them being zombies. Or Jokey, a combination of the Joker and Loki, which warms my Batman and Norse mythology loving heart. I put pictures of these in the discussion post. Loot Crate is an entire community of fans that share their experience and interact with each other around the unboxing of each month's crate. And they guarantee $40 in value in each crate. And every month there's a different theme, and all items are curated around that theme. Previous crates have included things from franchises like Star Wars, Marvel, The Walking Dead, Doctor Who, Zelda, and more. This month, the crate will explore all the fun and delightful ways things can go hopelessly wrong. The theme is dystopia, with stuff from Robocop, Terminator 2, The Matrix, Bioshock Infinite, and Fallout 4. And there's a figure, cool collectibles, and, of course, the dystoporific monthly tea. Remember, as always, you only have until the 19th at 9pm Pacific to subscribe and receive that month's crate. And when the cutoff happens, that's it. 
it's over. So go to lootcrate.com legends and enter code legends to save $3 on your new subscription today. Winter morphed into spring, and Beauty spent days exploring the vast castle, which, if you can think of every fun thing to do from the 18th century, it was there. She found a wall of parrots she could talk to, a well-stocked library she could read from, another wall of birds that will play her any music she wanted, ad-free and on-demand. There were dancing monkey butlers, and an extremely courteous baboon, dressed as a Spanish gentleman, that would take her hand and escort her to dinner. After dinner, said gentleman ape would take her to see a play put on by a very talented monkey and ape acting troupe. They had parrots underneath their hats to say the lines, and the plays were beautiful. As an aside, I'm not making any of this up. Seriously, all of these things are in the original. Except for the whole part about not being able to leave ever, it's not that bad of a deal. At night, she had a very dignified female ape ladies maid to help her get ready for bed. Basically, I'm picturing Downton Abbey recast with apes, which I would shamelessly watch religiously every week. The next evening, they sat down to dinner. Beast said that she hoped she liked her entertainment and the help, and she said, well, there are plays put on by parrots and apes. What's not to like? He smiled and said she was beautiful. Oh no, she thought to herself as she put down her utensils. Here it comes. Will you marry me? He asked as he did every night. No, she said without looking up. Excuse me, he said, choking back tears. He rushed away down the hall, his scales scraping on the stone. She rolled her eyes and finished her dinner. Can't they get through one dinner together without him proposing? Throughout her time in the castle, she was visited each night in her dreams by the beautiful young man. They talked and talked, and he always left her with some variation of the same admonishment, not to be deceived by appearances. More time passed, and she found magic mirrors, in which she could see all the best operas and plays in France, Italy, and other countries. Basically like 18th century cable TV. All in all, she grew to love her time in the palace. She spent all day doing whatever she wanted, with whatever diversions she could find, tolerated a few sentences with the ugly, stupid beast at dinner, and then spent all night, in her dreams, talking to the beautiful young man who loved her. In her dreams, an older woman started showing up as well. She was a pleasant companion to beauty. She dispensed with wise words, which also included some variation of, don't be deceived by really do we have to spell it out for you every night appearances. Even odder than ape servants, magic mirrors, and dream boyfriends, Beauty found that she was starting to become accustomed to the beast's ugliness. Not only that, but she started to pity the thing. He was monstrous and seemed quite dumb, but she broke his heart every night, and though it was in his power to kill her, or worse, he didn't. He had only served her. She started to look forward to their little visits each evening, and it actually started to hurt her to turn down his proposals. Then she began to think about her family, and her father. One evening, at dinner, she asked the beast if she could go visit them, and he was indignant. She was so ungrateful. To quote the Ice King from Adventure Time, he put so much cool stuff in her little prison. Despite the character development not quite leading us to this point, she told him that she didn't resent him. In fact, she quite liked him. She missed her family, 
though, and wanted to see how they were doing. Pouting, he crossed his arms underneath his trunk. Fine, she could leave, but only for two months. Any longer than two months, and you'll find me here, dead, said the beast. Beauty assured him that she would say goodbye forever to her family, for real this time, and she would come back before two months. He produced a stone ring and slammed it on the table. If she really wanted to come back to her eternal captivity, she just needed to turn the ring before she went to bed, and he would take care of the rest. He was so mad that he almost didn't ask her to marry him, but he did, and she still said no. Beauty blinked awake. Something was wrong. She had gone to bed in her room, in the beast's castle, but woke up in some house. She heard voices outside and reached for her bell to call her ape lady's maid, but there wasn't any bell there at all. She cautiously crept across the room toward the voices, cracked open the door, and peeked out. She smiled wide. Her bedclothes flowed behind her as she rushed to her father and hugged him. He was awestruck, and for minutes, he couldn't do more than just stare at the girl. She explained all about the beast, the dreams she had every night, the monkey butlers, everything, and her father and brothers, when they heard of her deadline for this trip, said, oh great, and now all you have to do is just not go back, and the beast will die. This is fantastic news. Beauty was ambivalent though. On one hand, she enjoyed having her freedom and being able to see her family again, but she made a promise to the beast to return, and she didn't want to see him die. And oddly enough, as time away from him stretched on, she found she actually missed him more and more. She had a heart-to-heart with her father who told her, seriously, marry the beast. He may be stupid and monstrous on the outside, but it's obvious he has a heart of gold. Many women are forced into marriages with men they think are great, but they discover far too late that the monster was on the inside. In the time since Beauty left, her father put the riches the beast had given him to work to help secure marriages for his five daughters. Their weddings were on the horizon, and Beauty complicated things by being so beautiful and charming that each one of her sister's fiancés left their respective bride-to-be in order to court Beauty, their fiancé's sister. Beauty hated this, the sisters hated this, and though she told all of them in no uncertain terms that she wasn't interested marry my sister, they wouldn't believe her. Each of them thought another was responsible for stealing Beauty away, so they proposed a five-suitor battle royale for the woman who didn't want to marry any of them. The winner, or survivor, however that worked out, would get Beauty's hand, Beauty still refusing. Finding that her home was much more stressful than the pleasures of the palace, as she was going to bed, she turned her ring. The only issue? She had forgotten. She was one day late. Two months and one day, had passed since she left the palace. Beauty awoke to an ape servant with a parrot translator on her head squawking out a greeting and bringing her breakfast. It was good to be home, back in the castle that is, but she was troubled by a dream. The entire time she was back with her family, her dream boyfriend was absent. Worse yet, last night she dreamt that she followed a secret passageway underneath the castle and found the shrouded figure of the beast dying there. Every so often, in a flash, he would transform into her dream boyfriend and then back into the beast. The wise older woman told Beauty that she had done this 
and not marrying the beast, she had cursed him. She stood in anxiety all day, and the best ape produced, financed, and acted play couldn't take her mind off the beast. That evening, she waited for him at dinner. She had missed him over the two months, and her father's words had had an effect on her. She couldn't bear the thought of him dying, unloved and alone. She pitied him. She would accept his proposal tonight. But he didn't come. She waited hours, but he didn't show up. She rushed from the table and searched the labyrinthine palace, but didn't find him. Then she remembered the secret passageway from her dream. She ran to the garden and found the bush. Pulling it back, she uncovered a rough passage that led into the darkness. She snapped her finger, and a team of monkey servants came with torches, anticipating her needs in a way that only the best monkey butlers can. She wound her way through the darkness of the underground, and eventually found the beast. Collapsed on the floor of the cavern underneath the castle, she ran to him and saw that he was alive, but only barely. So you know what happens next, or at least the broad strokes of it. Sorry to pull you from the story, but you know what happens next. The dying beast apparently just needs a glass of water to return to health. And the glass of water was delivered by a team of loyal monkey servants. And when the life-saving help is delivered by a team of loyal monkey servants, it's kind of hard to maintain any seriousness. In the abridged version, he had died, and her tears brought him back to life. Okay, Subidi confessed her mostly unconvincing love for the beast, who waited until dinner the next day before he proposed to her. Unlike the many, many other times before, she said yes. Then, there was a constant stream of 20,000 fireworks outside over the course of the next three hours, illuminating the night sky like daylight and annoying any neighbors the beast might have. And it also shouldn't surprise you that, after going to bed soon after, she woke up not next to the beast, but next to the young man from her dreams, the one she loved. He was the beast the whole time. How, you might wonder. Well, if you've seen the Disney version, it's really nothing like that. He sat up and explained it to her. So as an aside, right off the bat, fairies exist. There's a complex hierarchy, legal system, and power differential between different fairies. They can be both good and bad, and we won't go into the 20 pages the author used to describe the fairies, though I've posted the source on the site if anyone is interested. Anyway, the beast, who was a handsome prince, was once a baby. A human baby. His mother, the queen, was completely and irrefutably awesome. She was a warrior, and she acted as the queen regent until her son came of age. A rival king saw what he assumed was a weak female monarch and a king baby, and thought that their kingdom would be pretty easy to get. Rumors of treachery came from far away, and the queen rode off at the front of her army to meet the enemy. Since battlefields are no places for babies, even baby kings, she left her son in the care of a notoriously evil and dangerous fairy. Just as a quick detail, this is always a bad idea, don't leave your children in the care of evil and dangerous supernatural creatures. The queen thought that she would only be gone for a year, but the rival king proved more troublesome, and she wasn't gone for one year, but 15. Meanwhile, at home, the fairy who was incredibly old and powerful found that this 15-year-old she was raising didn't look too bad. Having not really known his mother, he called his primary caregiver, the fairy, mother, until 
to her, he started to look like a handsome adult prince instead of a handsome child prince. And the fairy told him to stop calling her mother. Also, let's get married. The prince was only 15, but he knew better than to marry his ancient fairy nanny and politely refused. Day in and day out, the wizened old fairy crone kept asking him to stop calling her mom and marry her, which out of context would be pretty messed up, and it's still pretty messed up in context. The queen returned, and though she wasn't surprised that this devious fairy was devious, she wasn't going to let her marry her son. Spouting the cliche lines of, I created him so I can destroy him, referencing that she helped turn the prince into the cultured young gentleman he was, the ancient fairy used her powerful magic. The prince collapsed on the floor, his skin turned to scales, and an elephant nose shot out from his face, and his hands turned into sharp, hairy, and menacing claws. It became difficult for him to breathe, or even speak, and the fairy laid out a number of very specific rules for the transformation. He could transform back if a woman married him as a beast. No one could know he was actually the prince. He had to be dull and stupid, so he was prohibited from sparkling conversation. There was no time limit, unlike the Disney version. With a smirk, the evil ancient fairy disappeared, like the great gazoo, and left them. Okay, so remember how I said a fifth of the story was devoted to fairy politics and power structures? Well, the queen apparently had another fairy on retainer, who witnessed the whole thing. She couldn't undo the magic because of reasons too lengthy to discuss, but she did have a plan. First, everyone needed to clear out of the castle. The fairy waved her hand, and the whole population of the town surrounding the castle froze in place, like painted statues. That way, no one would see the beast, assume his identity, and disqualify him from turning back. The fairy actually had the perfect girl in mind. The queen needed to go, because this plan will require everything to look super scary and creepy. The prince, meanwhile, was still in his right mind. He spent his days not in a lair doing nefarious beast things, but reading and gardening, being waited on by invisible genies. Yes, genies, like in the Aladdin story. He practiced his scary faces with the good fairy, and soon the fairy told him that the man whose daughter would deliver him was on his way. He put on a show of being threatening and all that, but inwardly it made him very uncomfortable, threatening the lives of the nice merchant and his 12 children. The man left and returned with beauty, and the beast was somewhat surprised that he fell in love with her instantly. He was so in love with her that he didn't just see her at dinner. He saw her always. He would take breaks from his hobbies and turn invisible and fly and follow Beauty around the castle, watching everything she did. He would scrape his way through the castle once a day to have dinner with Beauty, but then make his way back to his tower where he had another magic mirror, which he used to watch her dreams at night because who needs privacy? The good-looking youth was planted in her head by the good fairy, but it almost backfired in that she fell in love with the apparition and almost didn't marry the beast. Every night, he thought about confessing his love and sparkling conversation, but he resisted, knowing that powerful, evil fairy magic would leave him forever in the beast form if he didn't pretend to be stupid. The whole thing about him dying wasn't part of the curse. He just loved beauty so much that the thought of her leaving drove him to suicide, and he didn't eat for two months. It was only her fortuitous return and the speedy service of a monkey butler that revived the beast. When Beauty learned of these things, she interpreted them as very sweet and embraced her new husband. Then, they heard voices outside. Beauty was surprised to see the queen, who was actually the older woman from her dreams. And the queen was informed that her son was back by the fairy, 
As they rode past, the fairy unfroze the denizens of the castle, not apologizing or explaining that it was now spring and they had just lost a year of their lives. The queen, seeing that her son was restored by the love of this daughter of a merchant, decided that, wait, wait, the daughter of a merchant? Yeah, no, this wasn't happening. Her son was a prince whose futures wouldn't be sullied by the bloodlines of someone so degrading. Thanks for saving my son, but you can pick from any of the other guys in my court, and I'll command them to marry you. I'm not going to be tortured by having a daughter-in-law of such ignoble birth. The prince was incensed and demanded to be turned back into the beast so that he could marry Beauty. He'd rather live as a monster with her than as a normal, strikingly handsome human without her. Beauty was sweet about it, but she didn't accept the consolation husband. She had no designs on the prince's wealth or station, and she loved him as the beast. She would see herself out. The fairy spoke up, though, as Beauty was about to leave. Beauty, as it turned out, was not who she thought she was. She was the daughter of a fairy and a king. Through even more complex and weird fairy laws, Beauty, when she was only a baby, was left to die by another evil fairy after her mother was taken prisoner for breaking fairy laws and falling in love with a mortal. The baby was left for dead in the forest, and this fairy here scooped her up and took her to the city, where she saw the fantastic house of the merchant. She knew that she couldn't hide the baby with a king or queen. That would have been too obvious. She flew through a window, and the nurse for the baby was sitting there, asleep. The fairy heard outside that the people were worried about the health of the new infant. Thinking that she might be able to help, the fairy raised the covering over the bassinet, only to see the life fade from the child. It was tragic, but it did present an opportunity. The fairy switched out the now-deceased baby for the healthy, half-fairy baby. So that's why Beauty thought she was the daughter of a merchant, but she was actually a princess. And, as it turned out, the king, Beauty's father, was actually the queen's brother, which made Beauty the queen's niece and the prince's cousin. The queen made an about face. Well, that changes everything, she said. Since they're cousins, they can absolutely marry. If she's of the same bloodline and not a merchant or peasant or troll or whatever she was, then it's totally fine. And so Beauty and the Beast were married. And fairies, to borrow another line from The Simpsons, are apparently the cause of, and solution to, all of their problems. The merchant, Beauty's sort of adopted father, arrived with his 11 children to the wedding of the prince, but found, to his shock and overwhelming joy, that it was his daughter who was being married. Not one to let a sentimental moment pass untarnished, the queen graced the lowly merchant with her conversation. The merchant, despite all of his faults, was still a loving father. The queen told him that today he loses a daughter and gains a new ruler. And, oh yeah, you don't know. She's not actually your daughter. She's my niece. Your child died in infancy, and a fairy replaced her with beauty. Sorry for your loss, and enjoy the wedding. It's not said what the poor guy's reaction was to finding out he had lost his infant daughter years ago, but I would imagine he was happy for beauty. Beauty, to her credit, still loved the merchant and considered him her father. Beauty and the prince were married and got to know each other free of dreams or elaborate transformations. For years, they traveled the world in love with each other. From time to time, throughout their life together, they would return to the castle where they met and be waited on by invisible genies and serious yet caring ape servants. They would sit at dinner together every night as they did all those years ago and reminisce about the time when she was a brave merchant's daughter and he was a lonely beast. 
Like Psyche, Beauty is an incredibly admirable heroine. She's honorable, brave, and intelligent. She's strong and doesn't fold under the queen, and she makes mistakes, but I do like how the characters are invested with some level of nuance. I like how Beauty, through her own intelligence, initiative, and strength, saved the day, and in the tradition of Psyche, came out on top in the end. Talking briefly about marriage, it was apparently very rough for women of the Ancien Regime. Girls as young as 14 to 16, like Beauty in the story, who was 16, were given in marriage to men decades older. Wives who didn't please their husbands risked being locked up in mental institutions or sent to convents. This story is considered to be a plea for understanding, love, and civility between husband and wife. I want to say thanks to Milford234, CC Moore, Mummy Punk, Sally Traffic, Fab2587, Kalisa, Danielle Hamilton, or D4 Neil Hamilton, Kitty0908, Enobis, Churchy274, and John John 35 for the reviews on iTunes. Thank you so, so much for the reviews. And if you'd like to leave a review, the iTunes podcast app is the best place for now. And you can find the show on there at itunes.mythpodcast.com. And I do have some more members to announce, but I want to take a break and go back to iTunes for a little while because we still haven't gotten through December of last year. So you all are amazing. Thank you so much for the reviews. And there's also a membership thing on the site. If you'd like to support the show and get extra episodes, the member feed has actually like 10 episodes on there by this point, you can do so for less than the price of a USB-enabled pet rock. Really. It's a rock with a USB cable. And that's it. The USB-enabled pet rock does as much as the original pet rock, which is to say nothing. Anyway, if you're interested, check out support.mythpodcast.com. The creature this week is Papa Boy from Trinidad folklore. His name means the father of the forest. Like any protector of the forest, he will look after the flora and fauna. He carries a horn with him to warn animals of approaching hunters. And when they can't get out of the way, he'll transform into a magnificent deer and lure hunters off into the forest. Once they're sufficiently deep into his territory, he will disappear, leaving them, like many forest protectors, hopelessly lost. When he's not shapeshifting, he's in the form of an old man with goat fur all over his body. Though he's old, you very much do not want to mess with him because he takes care of himself and he's extremely muscular. You can look at his horns, his rippling goat hair covered biceps or his beard with leaves growing out of it. But if you get caught looking at his cloven hooves, you better run for your life. He's very sensitive about his hooves. The creature also makes an appearance in Grenadian folklore, though not as a fit old man, but as a giant possum who can disappear and reappear to attack hunters in the forest. At this point in the podcast, I can only advise you to just stay out of the forest. Best case scenario, you'll get lost, but it's more likely that you'll inadvertently insult a ripped old man or run into a murderous, disappearing possum. That's it for this week. The theme song is by the band Broke for Free, and the Creature of the Week music is by Steve Combs. Links to the other music I used are in the show notes. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you next time.